news this week. Uh, the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, uh, bought a new house. Do you see that news? He bought the most expensive house in Los Angeles at a cool $165 million. And in case you're wondering if he's overstretching himself, uh, this is less than 1% of his worth. For the richest man on the planet, spending $165 million is nothing. He earns, did you know this? He earns $2,500 a second. In fact, to give you a comparison to him buying this $165 million house is the same as someone on the UK average salary spending 60 pounds on a house. Not 60,000, 60 pounds. How do you respond to that little snippet of information? You may well say, ah, but is he happy? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> I love this quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Money doesn't make you happy. I have $50 million, but I was just as happy when I had $48 million. <laughs> well, I wonder if the question we might want to ask is not, is he happy? But rather, what does it do to me when I hear that information about his wealth. Many of us, when we hear of such incredible amounts of money, deep down, begin to think, if only I had a little snippet of that wealth, here's the kind of house I would buy, and we begin to flick through right move or whatever our particular thing is. Well, in today's passage, we get a really different perspective on wealth and money and what we do with our money. We're in the middle of a series called Again, when we've been looking at this book in the Bible called Acts, which is all about the first Christians, the first church. And when I read the book of Acts, it both excites me and makes me sad. It excites me because I look at the potential of what was going on then. The world had changed, and this little fledgling group, ragtag bunch of people were changing the world. And so that sense of excitement about what God might do in us and among us is incredible, leads us to prayer, which is why we're really wanting to get on our knees and say, God, Lord, do it again in my life and in our life together as a church in this city. But also it fills me with sadness, if I'm honest. Because when I read the book of Acts, so often my life is so far away from what I see in those pages. That's the kind of church we long. But this series, again, is forcing us to say, Lord, would you do it again in our day, in my life? And today... We are daring to say, Lord, would you do it again in terms of how we use our money? This is huge. I'm guessing for most of us in 21st century Britain, we've not begun to scratch the surface of what could happen if God really opened our eyes to see the possibilities. Francis Bacon famously said this, 
Money is a good servant, but a bad master. We live in a society, don't we, in which money so often is God. Money is a gift from God, but should never be God, says Francis Bacon. And the Bible's perspective on money changes everything. And this little snapshot that we've had read to us is in every way as miraculous as the stories of healing and as the stories of opening eyes and all of that. Miracle took place because I don't know if you're anything like me. I need a change of heart in how I view my bank balance. They had a handle that open hands changed the world. When it comes to your possessions and how you view money, have you got open hands or not? And one of the experiences in my life that forms a kind of a story that I keep coming back to is when I was at Bible college years ago. I went to college to study to kind of learn about the Bible and stuff. Uh, and every year what you had to do was you had to have paid your fees by the end of the year to be able to carry on to the next year. Fairly standard. What I didn't know is that you're supposed to have paid half the fees by halfway through the year. So I remember getting a letter in January from the head of finance of our college saying, Tim, you'll know this rule, which of course I didn't know because I hadn't read the stuff. <laughs> and by the way, so far you've paid £16. <laughs> you now owe us £2,500 or whatever it was. And bearing in mind, if you can't pay this, then you won't be able to carry on. Boy. So the next day, with paper in hand, nervously, I went to the finance office and said, I'm really sorry, I don't know how I've missed this, I don't know what happened. And the big beaming smile came across his face as he said, you don't need to worry, we've had two gifts come in for you. And that took the amount to almost the penny of what I needed. And what was stunning for me is that one of those gifts came from someone that I didn't know two weeks earlier. And it was a reminder to me that God is not interested in our money. He's interested in our hearts. God doesn't want to get money out of our pockets. He wants to get false gods out of our hearts. And so in this passage, we get a glimpse of a group of people who trust God with everything. And it leads to surprising, incredible things. Look at verse 32, what was going on. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Literally, the multitudes. The church had been growing because the message of Jesus was setting the world on fire. And it was growing. And as a result, because it was growing, there were growing needs. They were one in heart and mind. But no one claimed that they were any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Do you notice that? No one claimed it was their own. What they did was not some sort of legal. This wasn't kind of an early form of communism or even an early form of communalism, where there was a sort of benchmark that you had to know this was voluntary what they were doing because their hearts had changed. Sadly, these passages throughout history have been badly misused by churches and by other groups, where it's all about the money, money, money. And therefore enforcing things. Whereas actually this group of people were so transfixed and transformed by Jesus themselves. Jesus really was alive. Therefore they could trust all of their life within their hands. And so therefore what they did with their money 
was just the same as what they did with their time, graciously, generously giving up for the God who'd given them everything. They shared it with those that had need. And Luke, the writer, goes on, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. Notice something. You see the word great, great power? And you see the word where it talks about God's grace was powerfully at work? In the original language, that word powerfully is the same as great. In other words, there was great power and great grace little snapshot of the early church. Great power as they told the world about Jesus and God did amazing things. And there was great grace in the community as they shared graciously and generously with each other. In fact, that word great is where we get our word mega from. Mega power, mega grace. That's quite good. I quite like that. But this grace wasn't theoretical. This wasn't a sort of doctrine that they'd read about. And therefore, they just gave them a nice warm and fuzzy. It led to action. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Do you notice key word? From time to time. This is not that nobody now didn't own houses. It wasn't that they sold everything they had so that then they needed others to start supporting them. No, it was simply with the gifts that God had given them, they were able to use for the church community for building God's kingdom. That's generosity. Knowing that everything we have is from him. And therefore, I want to use for him. Now, let's turn to each other. Turn to your person nearby and just think about who is a person in your life or your experience that has shown you something really of generosity. It could be a present that you were given, the way they lived their life, what they did with their time. Just somebody in your life that you think of when you think of the word generous. Just talk to the person next to you. Say hi and just tell them, well, who is the person that you can think of that characterizes generosity? I wonder what the characteristics of that individual were when you think about it. What, what was it that made them generous that so struck you? Because I, I, I think that the Bible hints at two contrasting attitudes to money. And it can be summarized by these words, I think. Mine and yours. And the first of these is mine. And it can be summarized by a grabbing. Mine. Let me ask you, when you go to somebody's house for dinner, and everyone says, jump in, do you jump in? Or do you sort of let others kind of go first? Or is there a, there's a grown-up version of that, isn't there? Where, you know, there's one potato left. And so what do you do? You offer it round so that everyone else fully knows that you really want that potato. <laughs> or is that just me? Sorry. But that, that sort of me approach where we grab whatever we can and hold it tight. G.K. Chesterton said, to be clever enough to get all the money, one must be stupid enough to want it. And this posture is an attitude of heart that is so protective of money 
that excludes generosity. <laughs> and that can look in very different people in very different ways. So somebody might be very well organized with their money and somebody might think they're really good with their money from the outside. But that person knows their organization is because they're deep down a slave to money. So they have to be so well organized they dare not get anything out of kilter. It precludes generosity. Or the others who might not seem to be very generous, actually it can still be a grabbing mentality because as soon as the money comes in, boom, it goes out again. And so how you do mine is an attitude of heart rather than actually what you necessarily see in terms of digits in your bank balance. And I just want to say something here, that it might be that for some of us here or for some people we know, that there are very real issues that you almost want to say, if only I could have that attitude of mine, because I've literally got nothing. And whether it be through debt or just money issues for us, we are in deep, deep problems. And I want to highlight Riverside Money Advice, and the work that goes on in Monk's Riverside Money Advice is a stunning opportunity for you. If that is you, and you know, and it may be nobody else knows, that you've got money issues that you're scared of telling someone, Riverside Money Advice would love to help you out. There'll be details in Outlook and details at the welcome point. Just be bold enough to say, actually, can, can I try and have, have some help here? That mine approach. When we hear Jeff Bezos' story, we think, what kind of house would I want? We used to play the game, what would you do if you win the lottery? And it's telling how you'd answer that, isn't it? But in contrast, there's this which is yours. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. Which, if that's true, that means even the digits in my bank balance are his. Yours. Notice what Paul says in his letter to his protege, Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who does what? richly provides us with everything. And why? For our enjoyment. Amen. And I think that's striking. Because for some of us, we've grown up in an environment where money is a sort of necessary evil. And it's, ooh. Whereas he's a good, loving father who gives good gifts for us to enjoy as a good father does. But there's a difference between enjoying that and that being God. Why? Because as he says, wealth is so uncertain. Don't put your hope in wealth. Open hands. It's his anyway. Lord, it's yours, and so therefore I'll do with it what you call me to do. Which therefore, for many of us, we have responsibilities with our family and all those sort of things. Taxes that we have to do. Why? Because we serve him. It's his. We use it for what he's called us to do. And in this example, there's a beautiful example of Barnabas. And Luke here is really beginning to introduce us to somebody who plays a massive part in the rest of the book. But he basically sets him up as a model. He's an outsider. He's a Levite from Cyprus. He's not kind of one of the inner core. They don't even really know him by his nickname. Joseph's his proper name, but they call him Barnabas. 
But what did he do? Sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Open-handedness. Why? Because, Lord, it's yours. Therefore, I want to do what you're calling me to do with it. And can I say here, if you're a regular member of Riverside here, you'll have known, you'll have got a letter in the last few weeks from Julian, our operations manager, just encouraging us what next steps you might want to take in the life of Riverside. And it's just an annual reminder that if you've never kind of started giving to Riverside in any regular way, you might want to think about doing so. If you've not done that, you come along as you're part of the team, part of the family, as it were, pick up this leaflet from the welcome point. It's got details about how you can do that. Or if you do, but you've never really reviewed it for quite a long while, you know, maybe it's an opportunity to think, God, what are you calling me to? All of that is simply saying, Lord, it's not about the money, money, money. It's about my heart. Lord, it's yours. And there's another example I want to share with you this morning before we come to respond about this. And it's this man, Lord Shaftesbury. Lord Shaftesbury is, I think, one of the most influential Britons that most people have not heard of. They've heard of Shaftesbury Avenue, but they've not heard of him. Shaftesbury Avenue was named after him. And why? Because in the 1800s, he was part of the elite. He was the gentry, the moneyed people in London. His family owned massive amounts. But despite his family wealth, he used it, Lord Shaftesbury, to do incredible things. He was the one that outlawed children working in factories, which set him apart from his wealthy friends. Why? Because his wealthy friends got wealthy because they could do cheap labor. He was willing to be on his own amongst his peers. He was the one who outlawed children going up chimneys. Not as fun as Mary Poppins made it to be. He was the one who pushed through laws to protect those with mental and cognitive disabilities at a time where they were literally chained to their beds and abandoned over weekends. He set in motion laws to protect them. He was the one that set up the first schools so that the poorest of the poor could get education so that maybe they might be able to get employment. Now, it's easy for us to think, that's fine. If you've got that sort of wealth, you can have that sort of influence. What was stunning is that for most of his life, his father didn't speak to him. Why? Because his wealth was being spent by Lord Shaftesbury to pay his workers fairly. In other words, he was alone even in his family because as a follower of Jesus, he knew that all of this was his, not his dad's, not his family's. And as a result, the slums in London were cleared around the area of Shaftesbury Avenue, and the road was named after him. All because, interestingly, his nanny, who is unnamed, led him to faith in Jesus. Which is why what's going on the Children's Weekend Away, why what's going on so many of our lives, in terms of trying to help the next generation get to know Christ, makes a radical difference for all eternity. When we discover God's generosity, it naturally leads to generosity for us. When we discover that God is the open-handed one that changes the world, then we too can be open-handed. And as I come to a close, I just want to zoom in on one bit and then we'll respond. There's a key verse that was not read, that if you've got your Bibles, they're interesting to know. It's the verse just before this passage. It's verse 31. 
Because just before this passage, there's this bit where they've been put in prison for telling people about Jesus. And then they get out of prison. They have this amazing prayer meeting where they say, Lord, please, would we keep on being bold to tell people about Jesus? And verse 31 says this, and it's a bridging verse. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This whole passage is about bold, risky faith. And in the same way that they were facing opposition, they wanted to be risky in the way they told people about Jesus. So too, this passage is about being risky even with our money. And the Holy Spirit is right at the center. In a moment, we're going to respond by asking God to simply change our hearts. From being mine to being yours. And what makes us do that? Well, it's quite telling, isn't it? What's the message that they were sharing? They continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's only when we realize that my whole life and eternity is in God's hands, he's the one who beat death, that I can trust him with my stuff. You've been so generous to us, Lord Jesus. May we then be generous with those around. Friends, open hands with our lives leads to open hands with each other. So I wonder where you're at with this. Might I suggest when we think about money, it's not about the money. It's about our hearts. And may we be people who say, Lord, change my heart. I want to be wise. I want to be generous. I want to respond to what you've done towards others myself.